Hey everybody, welcome to today's episode of the Queer Caucus. Today we will discuss Edie Windsor and all of her amazing accomplishments in the pursuit of LGBTQIA equality. We will also discuss the recent acquittal of former police officer Jason Stockley and the wrongful murder of Anthony Lamar Smith. And in the vein of this acquittal, we also wanted to talk about some of the lesser known LGBTQIA riots and protests as they relate to the ongoing pursuit of justice for all. We'll also reflect on the one-year anniversary of the Queer Caucus, and we'll take some time to think about our favorite moments, our triumphs, struggles, and everything in between. I could tell you how the story goes. If it die, we just get old. All together, all alone, all alone, all alone. Like your mother and your father, too. All grown up, but they're just like you. And you're gonna do it all anew. Better run for the hills, run for the hills, run. Hi, Jill. Hi, what's up? Not a whole lot. What's going on, friend? Man, not a whole lot. I am, you know, just working, and I feel like the year is fucking flying by. Like oh it's my the, god! Oh my god! Like what? It's like almost October. I know. It's my favorite month. I love October. It's a great month. Halloween, y'all. Oh my god, Halloween! I cannot wait. Like, do you know what? I asked off for the weekend before Halloween so that oh. I could watch the Stranger Things. Like. <laughs> binge like with my sister i was just like, gonna ask if you were excited about that i'm it looks amazing oh my god it's gonna be I'm so, so good excited. you know i think it will be excellent but i'm also a little worried that like the hype like was i think that one of the things about the first season that was so amazing is because i was not expecting like it was just completely i had no preconceived notions about the series like yeah. i just yeah. like happened upon it and was like blown away so now that, like, there's just been, like, this really big, like, um, build up to, like, the season two, I'm just a little apprehensive that it will be a letdown just because of, like, that's what happens yeah. when people get their hopes up. And they start, like, you know, projecting all this, like, their hopes about the series and everything, like. So I am really stoked, but I'm also trying to keep, like, a level head about it. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Yeah. Yay. So we've got a pretty exciting agenda today. We're going to talk about the late, great Edie Windsor. We're going to talk about some of the lesser known LGBTQIA protests and riots that shaped the 20th century. And we're going to talk a little bit about the um, acquittal of Jason Stockley. Very, very STL relevant. Jill, do you want to kick it off and tell us a little about the late, great Edie Windsor? Uh, Yes, I would love to. All right. So for y'all that don't know, Edie Windsor was a champion for Mm. the like queer community. Honestly, like she did so much when after she she recently passed. So that's why we're discussing her and her impact right now. You know, it was like very sad day when we found out that she had passed away. But also it was an opportunity for us to talk about all the wonderful things that she did. And I think that particularly for the younger members of our community who didn't live through all the things that she did, it's nice to be able to um, educate people about the things that we are afforded now that weren't always the case. And so, yeah, yeah, like just just like a history of her life, like she was born into the Great Depression, like she was, you know, uh, a child of Jewish Russian immigrants. They had a really hard childhood because their father like lost everything in the Great Depression. But she early, early in like the 50s or 40s or something, she went to college as a woman. She got her her bachelor's degree. Uh, and she actually she got a master's degree in applied mathematics from NYU. And then started working at IBM. Like, she was, like, hashtag Damn. women in STEM before that was ever a thing. Hell yeah. Like, this woman, she's been changing the game for a long time. 
So it was, like, really cool to find that out because um, I didn't know that about her. Like, I didn't know that she was so, like, into, like, math and science and technology. So she was briefly married to a man. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, like, like a year later, she was like, I, yeah, like, I can't do this. gotta get divorced. Like, <laughs> I want to be with women. So that was, like, technically her first spouse. But, like, one of the reasons why she's so well-known is because of her relationship, her late spouse, um, Thea Spire. So Thea Spire and she were together for a very, very long time. They were married um, in Canada eventually because it wasn't legal in the States. Right. Her partner, Thea, was uh, was ill terminally, and that was a really complicated thing for them not having, like, rights um as a married couple fortunately like she was able to have like a trust from thea like they were able to like legally make that happen but what was really big um and here's why sort of this case got started in the supreme court was that she had to pay over three hundred thousand dollars in estate taxes when she like collected the trust when after she died for legally recognized spouses there's a tax exemption so the IRS was like, you need to give us $300,000. She had like had to pay all this money. And like, that's part of the reason why she decided to to sue the US government and be like, no, I deserve to be treated equally as a, as a spouse, regardless of our um, sexuality and our gender. Yeah. So that's where it started. And then eventually, you know, the case got really, really far up. And it was really pivotal in the repeal of the Defense on Marriage Act. So the Supreme Court ultimately decided that Section 3 of the Defense on Marriage Act was unconstitutional. And so being the lead plaintiff in that case meant a lot of things for her. It meant that she was very... I think about this a lot in that the reason why anything happens in this in our court system is that one person decides that they're going to go through with, like, the process that is so, so grueling and so long, such as, like, doing appeals and all that thing, all that stuff. To be that person, it takes a lot. And she obviously had help and, you know, wasn't doing this on her own. But it's still, like, because of her decision to stand up for herself, she also stood up for millions of people. And now we're able to collect those benefits because of her willingness to take that on, which is really amazing. She's done like so much, like her list of awards is too long to read. So if you have interest, there's actually a really beautiful documentary about her and Thea and their life together and their engagement. Uh, it's on Netflix if you go, if you want to go watch it. It is called Edie and Thea, A Long Engagement. She actually remarried after Thea died and um, her wife um, is still living. Yeah, that's a little bit about her. Yeah, when we think about Edie Windsor and when we think about marriage equality in general, I think it's pretty easy to just look at the scope of marriage equality as being this phenomenon within like the millennial era or the millennium or the most recent like 15 years. But I mean, her pursuit and I think and her contemporaries like had been fighting for these things early to Mm -hmm. mid 20th century. And I think this is just, I think her death forces us to remember how wide the scope is as far as like the time line goes and i think when we do think about how long ago this this battle really began and when we think about how how far like one person's story came just in her own lifetime Mm -hmm. i think it gets to the impetus of why people were fighting for these things a little bit more i i was actually with um with some with some gays last night we were talking about (laughs) how a lot of the contemporaries of Edie windsor or a lot of these lgbtqia folks who like are a little older or on the older end of 
life often identify marriage equality as being something that was like a fight of the younger people's fight or the young people's battle because they didn't Mm. necessarily see marriage as something they valued. A lot of people identified marriage as more so conforming. Exactly. A conform straight culture. Exactly, Mm -hmm. exactly. Like they were in some way like releasing or 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 minimizing their queerness because they were like adopting this practice that was typically only seen in a heterosexual context. And as much as I totally respect and value their opinions, I think that's so real. Like that was their lived experience. It's just important to remember that like, even if folks from a specific generation might have opinions about these things, like they were still like integral to the acquisition of marriage equality. Totally. But yeah, she's just, she's just such a legend. I mean, like, like you said, she was one of the first like premier women in tech, premier queer women in tech, like, like a great legend has passed. And I, we want to just speak some reverence to her and and honor yeah. her in our little in our little queer space. RIP Edie. This discussion about Edie also makes us remember that like marriage is so not like it's just so one tiny part of the fight for equality. Yeah. And the really like the reason why she was even a plaintiff in this case it was not because like she wanted to be like in some way like arbitrarily or like ceremoniously recognized by the United States government. She was like, no, like literally this is costing me like almost half a million dollars just because I'm gay. Yeah, yeah. The thing about marriage is that like whatever the fuck you want to believe about it, it, the fact is that there are a lot of things built into like our society and our government legally that we afford to married couples and those things – Sure, like, you can separate that from, like, religion and, like, value systems of what marriage means to you, but you can't ignore that it affects you on those, like, very real financial and social and um, economic levels. Spousal rights during death, like, could have been, you know, refused to her, like, all these things. So it's an important thing to recognize that it's not just about being able to say, like, we're married, you know? Right. It's a lot more than that. It's so much more nuanced. Yeah. I think there's even a profound contingent of straight people that like value marriage more so for its like legal and economic capacity than they do for its like ceremonious capacity, right? I just finished All the Single Ladies by Rebecca Traster. Oh, yes. Yes, 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 yes. my fucking mind. Like you need to read it. I do. It's so good. Rebecca Traster is a pretty, pretty big fan of the podcast that Jill and I are also love uh, fans of. Oh my God. uh, Call Your Girlfriend. But yes, I have heard such good things about this book. It's insane. Like it changed the way I thought about marriage forever. Like I will never think about it the same way after reading this book. One of my good St. Louis gay friends actually just got married and I saw him not a couple, like not, not even like a week ago. And I was like, oh my God, Sam, congratulations on your nuptials. And he was like, thank you. And I was like, how are you? He's like, I'm good. I'm I'm very normal. It's very much the same. And I was like, well, isn't that the way it should be? Like, it was just so great to hear that because I was like, yeah, your whole world shouldn't fucking change upon your marriage. But like, he and his now partner, like, are, you know, they are married and reaping a lot of the institutional benefits that one would when you're married. So, oh, God. Anyway. That's great. Thank God for Edie Windsor and all that she's done. Yeah, for real. Another day older, everyone you knew. Chasing bells and ahead of themselves And you know you can't move One step forward Step right back Run for the hills, honey, run for the hills Honey, run for the hills Shall we chat a little bit about protest, rioting, and the pursuit of justice? Yeah, for sure. So for those of you who don't know, 
I live in St. Louis. <laughs> have you been living under a have rock? Have you been living like... under a rock? A, okay, so like I live in St. Louis and <laughs> we talk about this probably every single episode, but on September 15th, the St. Louis Circuit Court announced the acquittal of Jason Stockley in the 2011 death of Anthony Lamar Smith. So just to give you all some backstory... In the episode description for this episode, we will have a little link to an article by St. Louis Magazine that kind of gives a full recap to the Stockley verdict and all of the like accoutrement and additional information that you might need to know. So basically, we're going to give you a quick rundown of what happened in 2011, what happened on September 15th of this year, and how all of these things are really important as we continue to think about justice, policing, and whatnot. We also wanted to talk a little bit about policing and riots and protests in the context of the LGBTQIA pursuit of justice, both because people of color and LGBTQIA folks have are often seen as disproportionately brutalized by police in the, in the United States. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of evidence and a lot of history and a lot of context about how um, police brutality against queer people, trans people, people of color is just disproportionate in this country. So in December of 2011, Jason Stockley, who was a 31-year-old police officer, shot and killed Anthony Lamar Smith following a suspected drug transaction and high-speed chase, according to the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Stockley first shot at Smith's car in a church's chicken parking lot at the Thecla Avenue and Riverview Boulevard intersection. After, police said, Smith reached for something in his car and drove away towards the officers. Smith sped away and the car chase began, ending in a crash about a mile away. Stockley then shot Smith five times after Stockley contends. He again saw Smith reach for something. Police say that they found heroin and a gun inside Smith's vehicle. Smith was taken to a hospital where he was pronounced dead. So the first thing that we need to talk about in this context is the fact that someone was shot five times and the fifth shot, which was the fatality shot, was six inches away from his body. So again, what is this excessive use of force? Mm -hmm. This conversation about police brutality has to be factored into like, how is it that five gunshots and the sixth being the fatal one, six inches from the body, how is it that in any context, this is the way that police consider, oh, this is the effective way of rendering this person from like hurting me or rendering this person immobile? Like, how is this what their strategy is? Anyway, so this is basically what happened back in 2011. Jumping forward to now, when the circuit court attorney Jennifer Joyce charged Jason Stockley with first degree murder in May of 2016, it had been more than five years since the shooting. In the interim, the Board of Police Commissioners settled a federal wrongful death lawsuit filed on behalf of Smith's daughter for $900,000. Stockley resigned and moved to Houston. The case again captured public attention in April of 2016 when activists gathered in front of City Hall and claimed that the police had covered up the truth in the shooting and demanded charges against Stockley. Activist Anthony Shadid told the Post that Smith's mother, who was at the gathering, had thought Stockley was in jail. Now, this is a critical part to understanding the context of this story, why Stockley was charged. When Jason Stockley first approached Anthony Lamar Smith outside of the fast food restaurant, he was carrying his personal AK-47 rifle, which what completely violates department policy. He was later suspended for only 30 days for having his own personal AK-47 on the job. The police car's dashboard camera and two other videos show Smith backing into a police SUV and past Stockley, nearly knocking the rifle from Stockley's hands. During the subsequent chase, Stockley reported over the police radio that shots had been fired, and according to the court records, he said, and this is probably what you've seen if you see anything on Facebook or anything on the internet, you've probably seen the dashboard footage and the, the audio recording of Stockley saying, I'm going to kill this motherfucker, don't you know it? So literally, we have audio 
and visual evidence identifying that Stockley said to his police peers, I'm going Mm -hmm. to kill this motherfucker, don't you know it? Prosecutors in the Stockley case argue that Smith did not have a gun and that Stockley fired his gun five times at Smith following the car chase, including a final shot, which I said was six inches from Smith, and that the officer planted the revolver found in Smith's car and did not follow police procedure by handling the evidence while wearing gloves. So he picked up a gun. He wasn't wearing gloves. He put it in his car because we later find out that Stockley's DNA was the only DNA found on the revolver. Not Anthony Lamar Smith's, but Jason Stockley, the police officer. Right. If you own a revolver, like, your DNA is going to be Absolutely. Like absolutely. You, yeah. So later on, Stockley's attorney argued that the officer was not on trial for violating policy and that no conclusions can be drawn from Stockley's DNA on the gun because he unloaded it and rendered it safe after the shooting. It's just fucking police, it's like, just, covering shit up. It's just police brutality. It's police covering shit up. So a lot of people also want to know, like, why was there a judge in the acquittal portion of this case as opposed to a jury? In July, Stockley waived his right to a trial by jury, so his fate was decided by Wilson, Judge Wilson. His attorneys were operating under a gag order, so they were uh, not able to explain why they made, de- made the decision, but a lot of legal experts in town, like a WashU law professor, basically were surmising that because of the nature of policing in St. Louis and how many people felt, like, how people felt about it, they would they have a hard time to find find, a a, exactly, yeah. finding a jury that would be a jury of your peers, be a jury that would be um, as non-biased, non-biased. as possible. Yeah. Exactly. So that's just kind of a recap into what's going on. And so obviously in the news, if you've seen that this acquittal has like sparked protests all over the city. In fact, that night, September 15th, Robert and I and a bunch of our friends went to the Central West End where we protested. It was really powerful. It was really powerful to be at a protest. I had to go. Like I had to be there and I'm really glad I was there. And I think, you know, as we move forward and we talk about these kind of things, we have to remember that if you're not participating in some sort of protest or if you're not engaging with somebody in a really uncomfortable conversation or if you're not willing to like call it for what it is and do what you can to reverse the scenario or or fight the actual systematic injustice, yeah, you not doing anything is in fact doing a lot. You are not helping. So because of all of this, Jill and I thought it might be informative to talk a little bit about some queer history and some of the lesser known lgbtqia protests and riots yeah and so just to give you all a quick rundown there are three riots that took place in the mid 20th century all on the west coast um two of them were in los angeles and one of them in san francisco in the meccas of the queer world but the black cat tavern riots the Mm -hmm. compton cafe riots and the cooper donuts riots Yes. So basically, just to give you some context, uh, Black Cat Tavern was like a really popular spot in L.A. Yeah, it's in Silver Lake. I believe. Silver Lake. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So the Black Cat Tavern, and I think it's still operating, like it's still yep, open. It's still there. Yeah. You can still go. So it was a, a New Year's Eve party and there were a lot of uh, trans people and a lot of queer people that were celebrating New Year's. And essentially, there were a lot of undercover police that were entering the bar this New mm-hmm. Year's Eve. And... As they were ringing in the new year, police started arresting several patrons for kissing. Undercover police officers were beginning to beat several of the patrons, ultimately arrested 14 patrons for assault and public lewdness. The police used deliberate and excessive force during the raid to carry out explicitly homophobic state legislation that prevented queer folks from kissing, wearing clothes that didn't match their socially prescribed gender roles. I mean, just like all sorts of shit. So, Well, yeah, if you were dressed or presenting your gender in a way 
that did not match your ID, that was actually illegal. Yes. Just to be presenting, like, differently. Literally, like, as as we say, like, explicitly homophobic and, and transphobic, and transphobic state yeah. legislation. Like, this was the law of the land at the time. Naturally, like, this created a riot, like, in the immediate area that expanded across Sanborn Avenue. Basically... A lot of Los Angeles was touched by this riot. And I mean, it was it was just another example of not only police brutality and police homophobia, mm-hmm. but police transphobia and the disproportionate abuse that was seen that is still seen towards trans people today. Yep. So I don't know if you guys have heard of the newspaper, The Advocate, but mm. actually yes. like The Advocate exists today because of this event. Yeah. So it's pretty cool, like, to to just, like, learn about some of this history. Like, the reason why we know the term Pride or, like, Pride Festival or, like, any of this stuff, it's because of this organization called the Personal Rights in Defense and Education. That's an acronym for Pride. It was, like, an organization um, established in 1966. It was the organization sort of, like, the driving force behind the riots and the protests about the excessive force of LAPD and um, their homophobic and transphobic practices brutality and practices yeah Yeah. so pride had a monthly newsletter and it like eventually like that evolved into the advocate which is like our longest running gay news publication in the country yeah so it's pretty cool like that was the first time that we used the word pride in relation to homosexuals and like like the queer community in general so yeah it's it's pretty cool to, to know that 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 event has such a long you can just you can see the through line of the like the effects of it and the um the consequences and everything yeah maybe we should touch a little bit on like protesting versus rioting yeah so as i'm like living in st louis right now you know as as someone who has like personally participated in protests regarding the stockley verdict and other basic atrocities that have happened in the united states it appears that these words are used like almost interchangeably or not necessarily interchangeably but it appears that like People use the word protest when they are like maybe the one protesting and then people refer to it as rioting when they are on the other side of things. And I think it's important to remember that like just because somebody is publicly displaying their discontent with policy or like maybe hundreds or thousands of people, that doesn't necessarily make it a riot. Right. And also, like, honestly, I'm not saying that, like, rioting doesn't have a place. Like, yeah. fucking, we look at countries all over the world that are, we look at fucking Venezuela and we look at the Middle East. We look at all sorts of regions that have seen in the recent, recent history, have seen, like, dramatic government shifts and dramatic yeah. societal shifts. And this is part and parcel to humankind. But I also think it's important to remember that, like, as someone who has participated in the protests regarding the Stockley verdict in St. Louis, these are not fucking riots. They are protests. We are going and we are peacefully protesting. And if anybody is behaving in a violent way, it is maybe a handful of people, which I'm not necessarily identifying an opinion about that. Like, I'm not saying like, oh, we should always be nonviolent. Right. There were a small contingent of people that decided to act violently. And I think it's important that when we look at protests in general, we just, we need our local media and we need people in general who have this local dialogue to not paint with a super wide brush. Just because one person threw a brick through a window or just because one person did X, Y, or Z does not mean that all 800, 1,000, 1,200, however many people participating were equally as violent or equally as brutal. So I think rioting and protesting are interesting words to think about in this context because they do not mean the same thing, but they're often used in specific contexts to like minimize 
and lessen the importance of whatever justice is being sought. Right. Well, it decredits, like, right? Like, if totally people, decredits. It's a, it's a credibility thing. Like, if people see a protest as being nonviolent and it's called a protest and everyone's like, oh, I approve of that, right? Like, right. that's very American, even if I'm not really on your side of the argument. But the minute that it's called a riot, it's like, oh, well, these people are unre- unreasonable and they don't deserve any rights because they are, you know, not abiding by whatever social code I think they should be abiding by. Right. But like, like, I think it's ridiculous to expect like members of like extremely oppressed groups to like, <laughs> to not fight back. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like sometimes you fucking need to like. Absolutely. Have you heard the phrase like the first gay pride parade was a riot? Absolutely. It's Absolutely. in like relation to Stonewall. Right. So like I think there's a time and a place to be like, yeah, like this was a riot that was really important. And then there's a time and place to be like, well, you can't you can't call as a riot and for you, like in that kind of context, be trying to like delegitimize us. Right. So right. Yeah, you're right. It's a very interesting like concept to think about. And I'm sure that people in the time of these like Stonewall and other LGBT riots were like doing the same sort of thing where they were like, these people are just rioting. They're not, you know, they're hurting the cause, whatever they're doing is wrong, all this stuff. And now we kind of look at that word, we associate, you know, a Stonewall riot as a positive thing. Yeah. But I'm sure at the time it was like the same sort of thing. You know what I mean? Right, right. It's also very yeah. interesting because um, I know I've mentioned on this podcast previously that I've been involved in this educational tour of this play called Race. And we actually had a performance on Sunday the 17th, I believe, which was two days after the verdict. Oh, It was yeah. like, it was yeah, not like that. we had booked that show like months in advance and then like, boom, Friday, September 15th, the verdict is released, protests erupt all over St. Louis, and like two days later, like we're at the Missouri History Museum performing this play about race, in which after the play, we have a full talk back with the audience. And there was this really interesting, I suppose interesting is the word, you could tell the people in the room that like wanted to side with the protesters, but also had this like moral... Um, or had this, not, maybe not even moral, but like they had this inner conflict about like, I believe in the protesters and I side with them, but like also, why are you destroying like businesses? And like, why are you throwing bricks through glass? And like, just to be clear, like I'm not advocating for these things necessarily at all. What I'm saying, listening to the people, listening to the patrons who came mm-hmm. to see our show, we heard a lot of people say things just like that. I don't understand why people are violent during these protests, I but I do side with the protesters. And one of the questions, and like when you're in a talkback setting as an actor, like you have to throw everything everything back to the audience as questions because you just you can't tell them what they should believe or right you really can't even display your own opinions like you have to like give them yeah. more and more opportunities to ask themselves and i asked i asked the audience as you think about these instances where people become violent in a protest ask yourself what has to happen in your life for you to throw a brick through a window mm-hmm. and it just got silent like the room was just silent the entire theater and i was like what has to happen Does someone have to kill your children for, like, you to throw a brick through a window? Yeah. Does your partner have to die because they didn't have access to healthcare? Like, what what happens in your life? Right. Like, just in an emotional capacity. I was like, think about you and your emotions and who you are as a person. Because everybody in this room, we only know who we are, right? Think about who you are and you know yourself as far as, like, the way you manage your emotional complexities. But, like, everyone, I think, or many people, I would imagine, have experienced either rage, fury, sadness so profoundly that they have wanted to become violent or they've wanted oh, to totally. do something or they wanted to lash out or whatever. Whatever. Exactly. So it's it's not necessarily an unrelatable feeling. 
And so I challenged the audience. I said, what are the instances in your life where you might think, oh, I would definitely break a window because I would be so upset. And right. these are the moments that we need to understand empathy is critical. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm not necessarily saying I think this is the proper or the the most effective way to to change policy. But I think it's important to remember that people who throw bricks through windows are so hurt and so yeah. broken and so shattered. And it's important yeah. to remember that they got to that point for a reason. Right. And who are we to say what they should and shouldn't do? Yeah. Who are we to say that like, you know, oh, that's not a justifiable reason to break a right. window. Or that's not a, that's not a healthy or an acceptable way to grieve or like, you know, deal with your oppression. Like, fuck, like none of us have that right yeah. to police those people. You know, yeah. they're being policed enough as it is. Exactly. So moving forward, we've got a couple other instances in the queer canon that we want to talk about. Compton's Cafe, the Compton's Cafe riots of the 1960s. Compton's Cafeteria was this restaurant where a lot of LGBTQIA people would go and frequent. And uh, more and more so in the 60s, police began to crack down on transgender people who would frequent the restaurant. And in response to like a lot of police arrests, the transgender community launched a picket of Compton's Cafeteria, like a perfectly nonviolent, normal ass, fucking federally (laughs) protected picket. And although the picket was unsuccessful because it was broken up, It was one of the first demonstrations against police violence directed towards transgender people in San Francisco. On the first night of the riot, the management of of Compton's Cafe called the police when some transgender customers were becoming raucous. And in the 50s and 60s, police officers were often known as they are today to mistreat trans people. Mm -hmm. So when one of these officers attempted to arrest one of the trans women, she threw her coffee in his face. At that point, the riot began, dishes and furniture were thrown, I mean, everything was smashed, Uh, police police called reinforcements in, fighting spilled into the street. Yeah, and like thus began a riot that was pretty much entrenched in the trans Mm -hmm. experience related to police brutality in San Francisco. And very similar to a lot of its peer riots or peer protests where you see that like, either trans folks or LGBTQIA folks begin to like find pockets of community where they frequent because they feel safe. And then you see very, very typical police state actions of like police officers, like slowly encroaching on their spaces and becoming more and more like voyeuristic, like aggressive and targeting. Exactly. And then you see moments like this where like, just like the baking soda and the vinegar went to town, man, and boom, an explosion happened. Right. That's like, I was just thinking that like this, the situations where quote unquote violence erupts, like it's like a pressure cooker. Like there's, there's just all this buildup. There's just so much systematic shit and so much history and so much happening and so much oppression and targeting that like eventually it's going to bubble over. It's going to like erupt or, you know, like there has to be like some kind of release. Like it just has to happen. And a lot of ways those things happen as what we consider a riot. I feel like that's totally normal, like, human reaction to being oppressed. Yeah. Uh, there's another one in L.A. that happened yeah. downtown, Cooper Donuts. Cooper Donuts yeah. on Skid Row. You can still go there, actually. Yes, totally. Cooper Donuts was, like, a popular hangout for trans people. And on the day of this riot, the Cooper Donuts riot, two police officers entered the cafe and asked patrons for their IDs. Some of the officers 
attempted to arrest two drag queens, two male sex workers, and a gay man. After the detainees protested the lack of room in the police car, onlookers began throwing coffee cups, trash, and all sorts of things at the police until they fled them, uh, fled without them in the car. People then took the riding into the streets. The police backup arrived, blocking up the street for the entire night, and they started arresting several people. So again, like another instance where we're in this pressure cooker mm-hmm. and we're seeing that like as some of our peers are in the victim perspective, the community begins to rally around and it's mm-hmm. yeah. All of these things are pre-Stonewall. Exactly. Like exactly. these are that's the reason why we bring it up. It's it's so like interesting. We think of the Stonewall riots as like extremely pivotal to our movement, and they were. Um, but it's also just something to remember that it it wasn't just Stonewall. Like it was, you know, it's happening other places too. It was happening before Stonewall. It was and you know, like what's really great that I that about all of these events is that trans people of color were such a huge part of each of them yeah. and they, the reason why they were so pivotal was because of their presence and their activism and i just think that that's that's just so important to remember yeah too it's the same you know? point to Edie windsor like the scope of this conversation and the scope of this battle goes back so long like so mm-hmm. so far back and I mean, these are just three examples of protests slash riots that took place before Stonewall in San Francisco and Los Angeles. But like guaranteed, there are instances all over the country, all over the world where these things yeah. were happening and they weren't going into textbooks. They weren't going into classrooms. They weren't going anywhere. They were staying in the past right? until we had access to this information later on or until the queer people who did carry on these legacies were able to put them on the internet. And then before Mm -hmm. you know it, the queer young people or queer youth were able to dive back into a history they may not have known they were pretty much a part of. And like, honestly, like even having like a gay newspaper such as The Advocate was like a huge risk. Like, I mean- Such a risk, yeah. You know, of course we all have the First Amendment rights, like right to free press or whatever, but like- just because you have the written right of that and doesn't mean that you're always going to be treated as an equal under the law. So, I mean, it's not like these people who are writing the advocate were really able to like, you know, fly under the radar. Like it was definitely like a risky thing for them to do, but like, it's so good that they did it. Yeah. I have a hard time with the, we all need to like be grateful for what, you know, the progress we have and all this stuff. Like those, those kinds of narratives really bother me. Yeah. It's like, what the fuck does that matter? Like, why do you have to lean on this progress piece as if this is the most important part? The way it makes me feel is like, you know what? You need to sit down and shut up. You should be grateful. Like, things are not as bad as they used to be. Yeah. That sort of thing. I'm like, okay, no. Like, listen, do you know how long it has taken this country to fucking, like, I don't know, even start thinking about treating people equally? Yeah. I'm just not willing to wait that long. No, it's this real old school mentality that, like, time will heal all wounds. Like, just, like, let time pass. I want to get radical. I'm not heartbroken. I'm, like, fucking disadvantaged. Like, stop being such a dick about it. Yeah. Like, look, like, I don't want to be fucking in my 80s before I see the things that should be happening right now. Like, I want to get radical because I want them to happen now, and I want them to happen in my lifetime uh, sooner rather than later. So, yeah, I think all of this is, it's, it's not removed from us. Yeah. Day 
So to lighten the mood a little bit, uh, we would like to take some time to talk about um, our anniversary of the conception of yeah. the Queer Caucus. Yeah. So yeah, if you all didn't realize that September, one year ago, we had like our first episode go live, here we are. Here we are, y'all, still on the internet, still happy to be yeah, here. Yeah, still on the internet, still in the queer sphere, still bothering you guys over <laughs> your podcast feeds. How do you feel? I feel so good, Jill. I mean, I remember like August 3rd, 2016 was the day that I texted you and was like, hey, so I've been thinking a lot about queer podcasts. (laughs) Like, would you be interested in making that happen? And you were like, for fucking sure. And within like maybe six hours, we had like a Google Drive and various Google Docs that were beginning to grow. We were just like, yeah. we were all, we were already like developing an itinerary for the first episode, but no, it's crazy. I mean, in the first year we did 12 episodes, uh, so mm-hmm. approximately an episode a month and we kept with the times. We talked about current events and things that matter to us, but then we also got to talk about fun things, like the things that matter to us, like on a personal level, the, yeah. the things that we love about being queer and not necessarily just the challenges. And I become a lot, a lot more... This might sound kind of like pretentious, but like I feel a lot smarter after having done this podcast for a year. Uh, yeah, I feel too. a lot it's more. It's challenged me. It has totally challenged me. Yeah. It has made me look more critically at what I read. It has made me mm-hmm. become more of a connoisseur of like the media that I consume and like yes. and where I go for my news and where I go for my information. It's made me, um, I mean, just like on a more technical level like I feel like I've developed some new hard skills but no I like genuinely feel like a smarter person and I feel I feel like I'm externalizing all the things that really matter to me and I think that's when like you begin to like self-actualize you know when you externalize the things that matter when you share real ass moments with people about the things that matter to you they matter that much more because it's like all of a sudden it's in the ether it's out there we're talking about it yeah What about you? What do you feel? What are you feeling at at our one year mark? Um, I feel really proud. Like, honestly, I feel like this is something that we committed to and we are really like, it's a pretty big challenge. Yeah. We are not in the same city. Like we are on completely opposite schedules. Like we both have full-time jobs plus like creative gigs and things like that. And we've made it happen. And like, I'm proud of it. Like I'm proud of. Yeah, me too. My ability to create something. And uh, and you're right. Like I have learned a lot of skills. Like, and like, am I great at them? Like, no, like I have room to improve, but like, holy shit, we started from the bottom. Now we're here. Oh my God, literally (laughs) started from the, started from like recording all of our sit just straight into our laptop microphones oh my god and like like we knew nothing about like jill do you remember the first episode where we had read this whole thing about how when you're doing a double ender podcast you need to have a synchronized clap so that you can like line up in in your in your like visualized audio tracks (laughs) like you can line up exactly when the audio should begin so we (laughs) like spent like 20 minutes trying to clap together (laughs) it's really hard It's so silly. It was like, it was ridiculous. It's actually very simple to do it just by hearing it. Oh, yeah. Like, as as long as Jill and I go, (laughs) and I'm recording, hey, how are you? Like, you just have an irreverent conversation and, like, try and match it up. You'll be fucking fine. Oh, my God. We were so hell-bent on making that happen. And then, like, I look back at the audio tracks, and I was like, we probably clapped, like, 25 times. And then... (laughs) Oh, totally. Like, it was terrible. So And, like, our our levels were all over the place. And, like, even, like, our ability to, like, stay on topic was, like, terrible. Oh, my God. I know. We have we've come a long way. Maybe come a long way. Yes, we have. 
Well, it has been a phenomenal year, and we're going to keep yeah. going. This, the Queer Caucus has a long future ahead of it. Totally. What are some of our favorite moments? Oh, my God. I was just thinking about election night. Election night. Oh, my God. How we experienced that together. And yeah. How devastating it was, actually. Oh, my God. Yeah, listeners, you definitely don't know this, but Jill and I live recorded the election, the presidential election, and we were so fucking stoked. (laughs) We were like, we're going to be recording our queer-ass podcast as Hillary Clinton is, like, wins the fucking, oh, God. Yeah, that was so weird. It was fucking nuts. I feel like their LaCroix boy shit from the last episode was super The LaCroix fun. boy was like next level. We, like that was so we're fun. so fucking extra. Yes. So we have the election <laughs> night. We have, what about, what are some of the first? Uh, well, we did like two really great interviews. Like those were really We did. Fun. Shout out to Ariel Hicks and to Andrew Coleman for joining yeah. us. Totally brought like some freshness and like a different perspective to our podcast. Oh, and we can't forget Jay Shepard. Jay Shepard. Yes, yes, yes. You know, Cassidy and I are like very open about like talking about our own experiences but like we don't represent the entire community right uh, like nobody does like you know that's impossible to have like one person speak for every member of the queer community right. so having different people yeah we wanted yeah, our like, guests to be able to touch on what the experiences of queer people of color of queer people of various backgrounds b- backgrounds and yeah. in, in, in shapes and sizes like and totally. how and how those things factor into courtship and dating and, and friendship and and the social like constructs life, it, all the things. yeah yeah it's been a great year Oh, God. So much has changed. Let's like take a time machine back to Jill one year ago. Okay, so I was in LA and I was entering my sec like I had just hit my like one year anniversary of being in LA and my niece was just born like the things were very new. I think I was very different like I yeah I think I felt very lost um, a lot of the time this past year and I've been just sort of really taking time to like think about what I want and finding confidence in that and I think I've taken a lot of risks this year like I have I've started thinking about things on a bigger level and like really what do I want in the future and like how am I going to go get those things so Mm. but also like this year I have started writing more and like Mm -hmm. embarked on that I am claiming that I'm claiming my skill and like you know, attempting to be better at it and like writing from personal narrative experience is something that I'm really interested in. And so like, I think I've also realized that it's not like acting is one of my passions, but it's not my only passion. And that's a cool thing. A year ago, I didn't have my Columbinus tattoo that I have now that I got with you and Annie. A year ago, were you thinking about grad school? I was not thinking about grad school a year ago, yeah. um, and now I am. And a year ago, I I didn't uh, I didn't know that the academy was going to face what it faced this summer. And uh, my sister wasn't married. Neither was my brother. Like a lot of things have happened in my family that are different. It's just been a lot of changes, and I've changed and I've grown as a person. And like I think it's weird that you like never really like notice those things in real time, and then like all of a sudden you like just think about one day you're like oh like I'm I'm different yeah I'm, I'm, I'm different. a different person exactly yeah I've I've changed or my perspective has changed it's it's interesting yeah um what about you what do you feel like your your year has been oh my goodness one year in the life of Cassidy since the founding <laughs> of this podcast. I mean, when we what haven't you done? What I, oh my God! I let me let me let me let me try to identify. Yeah, when we first started, I mean, I was living in my three bedroom apartment with my friends Elaine and Andrew, and 
it was good. Still kind of in that weird, like, we were that time when you're out of college, approximately, and, like... Oh, yeah. I was, like, working at this nonprofit, and now I work at new job. I work at Amazon now, and I feel like at the time I had a lot more anxiety and, like, fear about where I was in my career and mm-hmm. what I was not doing versus what I was doing. I think I still had a lot of residual mentality from college where, like, oh, I yeah. feel like I just worried about how I defined success. I didn't really know oh how I was going to personally define success. And yes. I, yeah, right. Like, and, and I, and I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm living in St. Louis. I'm living in the city that I grew up in. Like, am I doing that wrong? Like, should I be somewhere else? And the kind of theater that I want to be doing, I didn't realize I wanted to do it until I started doing it. And I started doing more of it rather. So like a lot of the theater that I do now is either like non-traditional or experimental or it's mm-hmm. um, grounded in activism, ra- activism yeah. racial equity, yeah. queer equity, things like that. And there's a career for that. There's a there's a path for that. Totally. There's a narrative for that. And I think I feel more empowered by that. And a lot of my peers and I like identify St. Louis as being what Chicago was in the 90s or what Chicago was in the 80s. And and mm-hmm. now you've got these cities like Chicago and DC or where you've got these kind of this kind of like oversaturation happening. And um I don't know. I feel I feel empowered to live here. I love living here. And I don't necessarily see myself moving like immediately, even though I definitely want to and plan to because I want to see more of the world. But I think at the last year, I've just learned a lot about myself and I've learned a lot about the kind of work I want to be doing. I've grown more and more content with what that is. And I'm yeah. uh, I'm just ex- I'm just excited for what the future holds now. I think I'm a little less anxious about having the career that I think my peers think I should have or have the career that I think my faculty think I should have things like that like I think I still have some of those residual concerns but yeah yeah just being empowered to be the artist you want to be I think I'm getting closer and closer to that yeah like oh my god when you were like I redefined success for myself this year I was like holy shit like yes that's like a huge theme that I that I agree with a lot and I relate to yeah and like my idea of success is so, so much different than when I was um, 18 or even like 21, yeah. like honestly. Yeah. Also, like I think we were in a unique position last year. Like we hadn't, the election hadn't happened yet. Like we had a, like this hope and like all this shit. Still Barack Obama era. Oh, like I fucking miss Obama so much. I miss my president more than God. I miss him so much. Yeah, oh my God, like, I miss Barack Obama ugh. so much. Me too. And I'm like, every day I just like wake up and I think like, what would life be like if Hillary Clinton were our president today? Like, uh, it would be like a hell of a lot better. That it would. But you know, like we experienced this year together and I feel like so much more politically active than I ever have been. Yeah, absolutely. I guess that's like a silver lining in like the fucking shit storm that we're in, Mm. like, is that people are starting to wake up and like become more active and like resistance and all that stuff. Because, you know, like we have to be yeah not really any options anymore i think it'd be fun to say like from my perspective how like i perceive your year and like vice versa Ooh, sure like a fun little game sure 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 okay so from my perspective cassidy here's how i view your year i view that you fucking worked your ass off like you were like literally like i can't even tell you how many shows you were in this past year because i lost count (laughs) and like that's really awesome like i just want you to know like that's fucking awesome you should be proud thanks pal if anybody like were to ever like imply that you were not a working professional actor i would just like kick them in the face because um, you're working more than anybody that I know from our class, and that's great. And you also have a fucking full-time job and a relationship and, you know, 
a podcast and all those things. So like I see a lot of persistence in you and excitement about like what's next for you um this year. And I really like Robert. I really like your new wave. Yay! Um I think you guys are great together. It was so great to see you in LA I know. Um, when you came. Oh. And I wish that we could do that more often. Me too. I feel like I view your year as like a huge success for yourself. Thanks. Hey, likewise. I view your year, well, I feel like I have to, like, mention initially that, like, when I think about my journey as far as, like, being a queer person and, like, being an educated queer person and, like, knowing the lexicon and knowing the context, like, Jill was the first person to ever really give me context for, like, what genderqueerness Mm -hmm. was or what non-binary identity was and, like, all of these, like, fascinating nuances of the LGBTQIA landscape. Jill was the first person in my life to ever, like, give me context for these things. And, like, not even, like, context, but, like, fucking some raw facts and, like, gave me <laughs> gave me words. Like, I will never forget the first time I heard the word heteronormative. We were in your bedroom, in your room, sophomore year in Wells Hall, and, like, you said something like, can you believe the heteronormative bullshit? And I was like, what the fuck does that mean? And when I look at your year, Jill, I feel like I have to, like, bring out verbally, like, this context that you gave me, right, as a person. And in this past year, I have just like seen you become so much more of who you are. Mm-hmm. I, every time I see you, like you are so much more of a fully realized Jill. Like I'll never forget when you came back from London and like you'd had your, like oh you got God. this haircut and you started wearing like, and you like this new wardrobe and all of these things. Like it's like this, like every single day now, like you are just so much more you every single time I talk to you. And let me put it this way. There are so many people that I know who don't have that who aren't doing that for themselves, who aren't giving themselves that sort of like self-love and and self-growth. And that is fueling your success, fueling your success profoundly. Like you're thinking about like furthering your education in ways that like I, I, you know, I can't imagine. Like I think it's so incredible and I think you would dominate any graduate program and I'm so excited for you to begin that journey. I think it's going to be amazing. But I think about the your like volunteerism spirit and like the kinds of work that you're doing in Los Angeles and the kinds of relationships that you're building. You are the epitome of like every single day is the grind and like you need to do every something every single day to get to the point in your career where you can have X, Y, and Z because you're you're starting from the bottom. You're starting from where you need to be just mm-hmm. like we are in our fucking early 20s. I don't know. It's just so admirable and so enjoyable to have a peer that like there's not this I never feel like there's like personal competition oh I my god I guess no. I don't know but like yeah I always I feel so supported by you and I see this this version of you that just continues to like make me feel like I can keep being an actor you know what I mean like yeah I remember in college we were in camera class it was second semester senior year we were in our mm. acting for the camera class and god help us. yes right god help that class but like one of the like kind of assignments of that class or like one of the one of the discussions that we had in that class was like what kind of actor are you going to be? And like, what oh, is yeah. your, what is your, what kind of roles what are, are you going kind of to you gonna have that we had this whole, mm-hmm. the, one of the hardest assignments I ever had in college was like putting together this presentation about our type and like what kind of roles we would play. And it was so strange for me. I had a very hard time with it. Um, But I'll never forget Jill just like walked into class and was like, I'm Jill Kamler and the roles that I want to play will be the roles that increase the visibility of queer people. And I was like, oh my God, fucking give me that elevator speech. Damn it. Like it was Mm -hmm. brilliant. And to this day, you just continue to elevate a sector of work that will give people those opportunities. And thank you so much. In this past year, you've just like, you've become the greatest little baby queer actor and you're growing. You're blossoming. 
Yeah. Oh, my God. And you know what? Like, to hear you say that is very special to me. It's been a terrific year yeah. with the Queer Caucus, and I am so excited for all of our future episodes. Yeah, thank you all for being here and for listening. Yes, God, the real ass-fucking yeah. MVPs. All right, Jill, episode yeah, 13. We did it. We're officially one we year are. in. This is We're so exciting. Excited. Yes, I'm excited. We are, like, I guess we are into our toddler stage i guess let's i don't know mm, no we are yes. we're gonna kill it well jill it's been so great i, I love, love you so you much too. and i'll see you in the yeah, queer sphere I'll see you in the queer sphere okay bye, bye.